today we will be continuing our Rooted series, and our passage is Hebrews 1, 1 through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Nate, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, last week, there's that, there it is. Okay, you got it. We're done. Um, last week, we started a series entitled Rooted, uh, Unpacking the Apostles' Creed. And the basic notion was this. We said this, that no matter where or who you are this morning, where you're coming from, each one of us has a creed. Uh, a creed is simply this. It's a deeply held core conviction which directs and guides one's life. And, and sometimes creeds are intuitive. They're kind of into the very fabric of our culture. So think about living in the Midwest. If you're not from here, uh, you kind of know this, but basically there's two things you have to do. You have to be nice and work hard. That's the Midwest as a whole. That is a creed for the Midwest. Maybe not in other parts of the country, but here that's, that matters. Um, sometimes our creeds are explicit. I said this last week, but you can drive really around any mass in neighborhood and you'll see the signs that say, in this house we believe that black lives matter and science is real and love is love. That's a creed. The Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed because it's the earliest summary. Uh, there's records of as early as the early third century of the summation of what the apostles taught. In short, it was the fundamentals, it was the essentials of the Christian faith that were to direct and guide a Christian's life. And, and our hope in this series is that in the midst of confusing times that we live in, that this series would provide clarity. Uh, in the midst of divisive times that we live in, this, this would actually provide unity. Uh, in a time in which it is so easy to be tossed to and fro by all that is being taught and said about the world, we might find a place to deeply root 
our lives. And this morning, we hit the second line of the creed, which is this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And right away, uh, we are introduced to something that is mysterious, that is the Trinity. Last week, we saw God the Father. This week, we see God, we, we see God the Son. In the weeks to come, we'll see God the Spirit. And the creed states essentially this, that God is three persons and yet one God. It, and you may have heard this before, that it's kind of like the, the Trinity is like, the wa- like water. It can be liquid or ice or vapor. That's actually not true. The Father is not, doesn't become the Son or the Spirit becomes the Father, but each one is distinct, and yet there is one God. And if your head is hurting this morning because of that, it's okay. It took the church 400 years to write that one down, okay? It took a while to unpack this, but that's, in the midst of this mystery, the second line states this, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is Lord, And that line reveals what is probably one of the earliest confessions of the Christian faith. In the original language, it was Kyrios Jesus. In English, Jesus is Lord. And Ben Myers, writing about this, he wrote a book about the Apostles' Creed, he says this, that early statement remains the spiritual heartbeat of the baptismal creed. Everything else in the creed radiates like the spokes of a wheel from the hub, personal attachment to Jesus, total attachment to Him at the center of the Christian faith is not an idea or a theory or even a vision of life, but the name of a person, Jesus Christ. And this week, this statement that Jesus is Lord means this, if that's true, then we ought to attach and pledge our entire life to Him. So, let me pray, and we'll get into our passage today. Father, uh, just pray now that Your Spirit would illuminate the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus for who He really is, that He is Lord, and that that would be what governs, directs, and centers our lives upon And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, each week in this series, we're going to have a particular passage that's going to unpack the particular thing we're focusing on. And it's appropriate that we're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews was written to some early Christians, and these early Christians were living in confusing times. They had originally put their hope in Jesus— And yet, the author of Hebrews is writing, and the subtext is essentially this. Jesus is fading into the background. Jesus, rather than being center and preeminent for these Christians, is fading. He is becoming a a sideshow. And the author of Hebrews is trying to put Jesus front and center again. Um, You know, today, we live in a cultural moment where Jesus is fading into the background. Give you one example. Elizabeth Gilbert's memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, 
spent 178 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. That book, the story is essentially the story of her leaving her marriage from someone who she insists is a good and decent fellow to instead follow her own voice, speaking of from within her own self. And she writes this. She says, You have every right to cherry pick in finding peace with God. Take whatever works for you and keep moving. Follow your supreme self and worship at the feet of the God within. And let me say this up front. She actually doesn't reject Jesus. She thinks he's the greatest teacher of peace. And by the way, I'm not, this morning, I'm not picking on her. As another pastor would put it, this is the most popular religion in our day, even in our churches. Voices like hers surround us. Do you see that? Jesus is just a sideshow. You see, and this is why the author of Hebrews offers us three things today about Jesus. The author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is greater than the prophets, he's greater than all the priests, and he's greater than the angels. And so that's what we're going to see. So let's look first at this greater than prophets. Look at verses 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews writes this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Notice for a moment, it's this language of God is speaking. The question is, who are we listening to? And the original audience would have known, would have drawn reference to the prophets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God. Think for a moment of Nathan the prophet, who comes to King David after David has selfishly and maliciously took another man's wife and then used his husband like a pawn and had him discarded. And Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you're in sin. Or think for a moment of Moses going up on the mountain in the book of Exodus and coming down with the Ten Commandments written on the very handprint of God. Or think of Elijah who lived in a time of apostasy, of deep unfaithfulness, and God's judgment coming in the form of a drought. And the question being, when will the drought end? What will the prophet Elijah say? Hebrews is saying, of all those prophets that have spoken before, that were mouthpieces of God in these last days, his son has come. And one other put it this way, it's not that Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the best prophet or that he's the most recent prophet, but he is the one, as Peter would say, all of the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. And here's why. The Gospel of John reveals this, that Jesus is God's very word in the flesh. That word for word is logos, and it means the self-expression of someone, of something. I remember when we were growing up, I'm sorry, when my kids were younger and they were growing up, my favorite time of year was in the fall, and we'd go to one of their, you know, open classroom, open house things. And I think it's like first or second grade, each of them would fill out a sheet, and it would say this, it would say like, my favorite food is, or I'm good at, at so-and-so. Like they would, they would express these things, I would learn things about them, my favorite subject is this. In other words, each, each of our kids were expressing who they were, their inner thoughts, and making them known. And John's gospel is saying this, 
If you want to know what God is like, his, like his self-expression, who he is, what he's like, even in Hebrews 1.3 it says he's the radiance of God's glory. It means this, that Jesus is the supreme revelation of who God is. Not just his words, but also his life and what he did. So when the author of Hebrews asserts that Jesus is greater than all the prophets, it begs the question, who are we listening to? You know, think for a moment of all of the things we're hearing out there. Think of the last TED Talk you listened to, right? Think of the last thing your parents said to you. Think of your spouse, your friend group, an author, an influencer, your favorite YouTuber, whatever it might be. It's not necessarily saying that we don't listen to those voices, but the larger question is this. Does Jesus get the final word? Is he the one that filters all of that? In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, if Jesus is Lord, if he's the, if, if he's the greatest prophet, his final word in these last days, don't let that fade into the background. Don't let Jesus' voice become one among many. But listen. But secondly, the author of Hebrews shows that Jesus is greater than all the priests. Look at verse 3. It says this, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. In the Old Testament, the priests were essentially a bridge between God and the people. That the priest would represent God to the people and the people to God. And the fundamental problem that you would see throughout the Old Testament is that you can't just go walking into God's presence. And it was because of sin. <clears throat> you know, in, in verse 3, when it says the, the, the word purification, think about the last time that you got the stain on your shirt or the stain on your jeans and you got whatever it was to try to get it out. That's the visual, that's the picture of what sin does. It's, it's a defilement. It needs to be washed out. It needs to be cleansed. You would never go see your friend group with that stain on your shirt. In, in a much more cosmological, bigger, and more dynamic way, you can't just go into God's presence defiled. You know, it's interesting in our moment that we live in right now, especially in our cancel culture, we're kind of living this out, right? You say the wrong thing, you think the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, and you are canceled. You are shut out from the public community. We kind of get that. Like, hey, you've done something wrong, you're no longer to be a part of this group. But notice what's happening here with the author of Hebrews. He's saying this, it's true, transgressions are real. Sin is real, but there is a way back in. And the way is, you need a priest. You need someone to represent you. And Hebrews shows us Jesus as the true high priest. Look for a moment with me at Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. The author of Hebrews writes this, and as, as we read this, notice the distinction between who Jesus is and all the other previous priests says this, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, uh, sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, there are at least two distinctions that are made between Jesus and the other priests. And the first is this. When the priests of the Old Testament went in, they offered the blood of animals. It wasn't their blood. Hebrews 9 says Jesus, when he went in, he offered his own blood. He sacrifices himself. But secondly, notice, in the Old Testament it says the priests offered sacrifices repeatedly which meant this, the last one wasn't good enough. We'd offer another one and another one. But Jesus, when he comes, all the other priests were a a foreshadow, all pointing to the ultimate one. And it says, Jesus, he offered once for all. One sacrifice, it says, for all. It's complete. There's no longer any sacrifice needed. You know, it's interesting in verse 3, it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Think for a moment when, like this last weekend or last week, when you went out and mowed your lawn, or you went out for a run, or you went out and did some work, when you get done, what do you do? You sit down. That's what you do. When Hebrews 1.3 says that he sat down, it means his work is complete. It is finished. And do you know what that means? That means this. Access to God, a relationship with God, is made available not through trying, but through trusting. It's not through your performance, but it's through His, a work that is complete. You know, later on in chapter 4, It says this, in light of this, let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for our time in need. The author of Hebrews is saying this, attach yourself to Jesus, give all of yourself to him. Why? Because he is the one who has made a bridge to God. He is the one who stands ready in God's presence to deal with all of your sin. He is the one that provides access and a relationship to God. But thirdly, we see that Jesus is greater than the angels. And this is a weird one for some of us, right? I mean, some of us are like, really angels? Um, We live in modern times. We can be maybe a little bit leery of believing in angels. Other of us have, you know, if we think of angels, we think of, as one author would put it, the chubby naked creatures that are a bit like Cupid. You know, it's kind of our vision. And and both of those are actually distorted views of what the scriptures actually share. Uh, The word angel actually could be translated messenger. And whenever they show up in scripture and anyone encounters them, there's this this like immediate just hitting the floor. Um, Think for a moment at Jesus' tomb. Those present, when they see the angel, they hit the floor. And it's like... It's like the angels, they get a script when they leave because every time they show up, people hit the floor, they get scared, and their script is this, do not fear. Every time. 
And yet the author of Hebrews says this, essentially this, that, that basically with like seven Old Testament quotations here, and rhetorical question after rhetorical question is this, is that Jesus is greater than even angels. Look at the first one in verse 5. It says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying this, God has never called an angel a son. And yet in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is baptized, the Father's voice says this, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son is unique and distinct. In verses 6 to 7, we see that the angels, though significant in being messengers and a part of the administration of God's work in this world, nonetheless are subordinate to Jesus. In verse 6, it says this, that let all the angels worship Him. In other words, when they show up and humanity hits the floor and wants to worship them, the angels, in response to who Jesus is, they hit the floor. They worship him. There is none greater. In verses 8 to 12, it focuses on God's, on the Son's eternal, unchanging nature, which is unlike that of the angels who are created. And listen, throughout this entire section, there is this culmination of a theme that was earlier in our passages throughout but in, in, in essence, it reveals this, that Jesus is not only a prophet, the prophet, not only the priest, but he's the king. He's the king. There are so many references in this passage to this, but let me hit one. Verse 13, look at what it says. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That quotation from the Old Testament is from Psalm 110, and it was used in the history of God's people and in the installation of a king. Think for a moment of our modern-day inauguration ceremonies, right? Every January, every four years, the elected president gets up, puts his hand on the Bible, and all of a sudden, at that moment, as he goes through the ceremony, he is inducted into that seat of office and that authority and the power that's given. When verse 13, speaking about Jesus, says that he's now put in the place of kingship, it means there is a king that has been installed and his name is Jesus. And, that, and here's what that means. If he's the king... And the question is, will we obey him? He is the one who brings about God's order, his good order, his kingdom. It is for our good, and the response is to worship and obey. Friends, don't you see for a moment how Hebrews 1 shows the greatness of Jesus? Not just one office, not just one thing, not just, not only is he merely the prophet, but he's the priest and he's the king. So here's the question this morning. Where is our allegiance? What are we attaching our lives to? 
You know, uh, some of you this morning, you're, you're, you're maybe not a Christian. You're exploring the Christian faith. And here's what I would say. I go back to that quote by Ben Myers. Notice what he says. At the center of the Christian faith is not an idea or a theory or even a vision of life, but it's a person. It's Jesus. Start there. And actually don't leave there. <laughs> Let me challenge you. Read one of the Gospels. Read one of the Gospels. And, and listen, if Jesus is, as Hebrews says, the prophet, the one who self-discloses God, I'll tell you when you've really encountered him. It's when he offends you. You know, um, some of us, for example, would say, I really like God to be kind and merciful, but not a God of judgment. Read the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see the mercy of Christ. you see the kindness of Christ, of Him welcoming in those who are on the margins. But then you get to Matthew 23, and you see Jesus giving seven woes to the religious leaders of the day. And it is stark, and it is sharp. The question is, what will you do when he offends you? When he offends your modern sensibilities? Does he get the final word? Right? If he's Lord, then he should get it. Listen, many of us this morning, we're Christians. And the same question is for us. Where is our allegiance? Where are we attaching our life? You know, think for a moment about his kingship. If you're a Christian this morning and you say, listen, I'll obey you if. If there's an if in there if you'll give me a good life, if you'll give me a wife, if you'll give me that career, if you'll give me whatever, then you're not treating him as a king, right? But please hear me. Jesus is not just a king. He's not just a prophet. He is a priest. In other words, we don't come to him for our acceptance because of our obedience. We come to him to receive acceptance because of what he's done. Which is why, close to 500 years ago, the Heidelberg Confession, the first question of it is this, <clears throat> and let this comfort you. It says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Go to him. Rest in him. Listen to him. Obey him. Let's pray. Father, um, we give you thanks this morning that you have sent your Son Jesus, we, we confess that you are Lord. 
And Lord, we pray for the grace and the kindness and the mercy and the wisdom to follow you, to trust you, to obey you for who you are. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, Jesus sat down at the right hand because his work was finished. And Jesus, before he went and completed his work, he gathered his 12. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterward, he took the cup and he passed around. He said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we respond this morning, we remember what he's done. In just a moment, as you're ready, you can go down the side aisles, grab the elements, return back to your seats, take them as you're ready, and remember and rejoice in this king who has given himself for you. You can go as you're ready.